You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. The Demogorgon! <laughs> Will, your action! I don't know! Fireball him! I have to roll a 13 or higher! Too risky, cast a protection. Fireball him! Cast protection! The Demogorgon is tired of your silly human bickering! It stops towards you! Boom! Fireball him! Will, stop! Boom! Cast protection! It was an anger! I just put Holly to bed. You can finish next weekend. But then I ruined the flow. Michael. I'm serious, Mom. The campaign took two weeks to plan. How was I supposed to know it was going to take 10 hours? You've been playing for 10 hours? Dad, don't you think that's one more? I think you should listen to your mother. Welcome to the 602 Club as we travel back in time to 1983. I am just one of your gnarly rad hosts, Matthew Rushing, and with me tonight to talk about something stranger, something stranger, is the wonderful and talented Christy Morris. Hello. Hello. How are you? (laughs) Good. I'm ready to get pumped and talk about stranger things ah me too i really am excited about that so um you know it's uh this is this is such a this show just took the world by storm last year like so unexpectedly so i'm i am really excited to dive in to talk about it and really fun too that uh you, did you know christy that as we're recording today the 24th of october uh is actually in 2017 for posterity's sake uh is actually the third anniversary of the 602 club that is awesome yes i did not know that until today yeah i'm really excited i I just want to thank everybody for listening for supporting the show for so long and uh we're going strong you know the fact that uh, we're still on the air uh is is just phenomenal um as of this recording with all the supplementals too there's been 188 episodes of the show in three years so that's pretty awesome so i i'm just really excited and to top it all off we got a new review it's a four-star review from brian m 47 he said a fun variety podcast that features different guests and different topics so it can appeal to a broad swath of the nerdy pop culture community so thank you so much brian m 47 i appreciate the review and uh hit us up with a star rating review yourself uh, honestly you know we're we're three years old, but we can always grow. So go over to iTunes, uh, give us a star rating and review. We'll thank you for your review and read it on the show, no matter what it is. And of course, uh, you know, hit subscribe. That's a great way to get the episodes the moment that I publish them. Uh, so you never miss an episode of the 602 Club. You can get us wherever you get your podcasts as well. So if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered. You can find us on Twitter at TrekFM and Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. If you want to join in the discussion with Christy and I about Stranger Things or anything we're talking about on TrekFM, you can go over to the Babel Conference, and that's our listeners-only discussion group. Now, you can get there on Facebook, type Babel in the search field, or if you're on the website at Trek.FM, where we keep all of our shows and all of our show pages, any of those show pages, you can hit discussion on the menu bar, and that'll bring you to the discussion as well over on Facebook at the Babel Conference. Last but not least, love getting emails from people. And if you want to talk about something that we've talked about here in the show, uh, email us. I'd love to get some emails about what you think about what we've been talking about, whether it's Stranger Things or we just recently did Kingdom of the Crystal Skull for Indiana Jones. We've done Bond and Marvel and DC and 
Star Wars and Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. I mean, anything you want to talk about, you email us, uh, and maybe uh, we'll have to start a new segment and read those on the show. That would be great. So, um, yeah, send us some emails, and we can do that. Well, Christy, I really I wanted to start off with you because, as I kind of mentioned at the beginning, Stranger Things is one of those uh, things that just kind of blew up. Like, it just became an overnight thing. Like, everybody was talking about it, and so I kind of wanted to know uh, for you how you found Stranger Things. Yeah, so I actually was always a, a Netflix binger since Netflix started and saw it come up in the queue but had not heard about it previously at all. It was like it suddenly snuck up on me. And I thought about watching it, but it took my sister telling me, have you seen this show, Stranger Things? And I said, no, I haven't given it a chance yet. Why, what do you think? And she said, it will blow your mind. And I was like, okay, maybe I should watch it. <laughs> well, and, and did it blow your mind? It did. Okay. Oh my goodness. It, the thing that I always say about this show is that it reminds me of the classic 80s movies that I love in the sci-fi realm, but it also, without being overly gross, um, keeps bringing something new to the table, um, something creepy, but it's not going to absolutely terrify someone who's not a fan of horror. Yeah, I know. I think that's a that's a really good way to describe it. it. It's like the mixture of Spielberg 80s and, you know, soft horror, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and you put those two things together with some of I feel like that almost Hitchcockian suspense that they do. And, and you have this strange baby. Uh, and I I'm right there with you. It was one of those things where. All of a sudden, everybody was talking about this show on mm-hmm. Netflix, Stranger Things. Because I didn't see any advertising no. beforehand. Yeah, no. And I was wondering what it was, and, you know, I kind of looked it up, and I was like, eh, I don't know. You know, I'm I'm not a horror guy, so I I don't like horror movies, and I don't really love Same. scary, super scary things, so I didn't have any idea how scary this might be. And then some friends of mine started watching it. Like I think uh, Tristan Riddell um, and some other people that I knew were telling me that it was really good. And so I thought, you know what? I, I need to, I sh- my wife and I, we should give this a try. And that first episode, we just, I think we just kind of fell in love with it. And, you know, it's, it's cool because it's an only, it's only eight episodes and so it is kind of one of those shows that's a little bit easier to binge watch anyway. You know, a lot of Netflix seasons tend to be like 13 episodes. And you definitely have to space that out between a few days. This right. one, you can legitimately, if you wanted to, spend all day, you know, watching <laughs> Stranger Things and, and finish it off if you wanted to. And um, we're actually debating doing that with Stranger Things too. But we'll, yeah. it's hard not to they always leave you thirsty for more yeah absolutely and so you know um with this one this is this is kind of interesting because so john mills and i just talked about indiana jones and the kingdom of crystal skull and that movie has all to do with the u.s and the russians kind of looking at and trying to harness you know psychic power in the supernatural and it was so funny watching this show because the storyline of Stranger Things is the exact same thing. Like the setting That's of so it. That's so weird. Yeah, is the, it, it's in the 80s though and, and that the U.S. government's been conducting experiments on people trying to understand and harness psychic power and the supernatural. And I thought it was so interesting how that connected with what we watched last week. <laughs> I'd never put yeah, that together before. Yeah, I wonder before. if... If, if they all talked about that at all, if it was any influence also on what they did. It doesn't seem like it, though, because they're talking about the Duffer Brothers' influence was more Spielberg and right. Stephen King. It's interesting because, you know, uh, obviously Spielberg is the director of um, Indiana Jones and the King of Crystal Skull, and that does take place in this, you know, the 50s. And obviously they're thinking all of these, like, 80s movies. Um, 
whether it's mm-hmm. Close Encounters of a Third Kind or, you know, you feel like the Goonies feel or any of those kind of things kind of get, all get wrapped up into this little ball that we call Stranger Things. But I just thought that was so interesting. And, and what a really kind of crazy thing to kind of build this story around that gives you the opportunity then to explore, you know, the supernatural, this upside down world, you know, the demigorgon or the monster or whatever you want to call them, you know, all of those mm-hmm. things, uh, just the way that they, they kind of put this story together, I, th- I, I honestly think is, is kind of masterful. Yeah. And I'm going to piggyback off of that and agree with you and say, I like how they seem to take all these different influences, but somehow make a way for them to weave in together that still makes sense. And I especially was thrilled. Um, Of course, you know, I'm a geek. Um, Proud of it. (laughs) No. I actually played Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, awesome. When I first saw them playing in the first episode, I went, yes, they're just like me. (laughs) Well, and and what's so funny is, uh, you know, when you were talking about that idea of the way that they kind of weave all of these different types of 80s movies together. And all of mm-hmm. those genres, I also feel like they're weaving all of those things together in the way that J.K. Rowling weaves together her story with Harry Potter, where so much of it feels familiar, but she also creates something new. And mm-hmm. Stranger Things does that exact same thing. It takes all of these things that we're familiar with and then creates its own universe. You know, so Stranger Things universe does have references to lots of other things, you know, from the 80s. But mm-hmm. you don't watch it and think, oh, well, that's that. And, oh, that's that. And, you know, like it's just a ripoff. Exactly. Exactly. No, you, uh, what what they really do right in this show, I think, is create something that feels new and old all at the same time and therefore as you're watching it yeah it's kind of scary and stuff scary things happen but you feel immediately comfortable with the world you're in I feel like in the same way when I read Harry Potter for the first time like I really felt comfortable in that universe and it was because so much of what she was using was vaguely familiar and yet it also felt new and rich and vibrant. And really, I think that's what we get with like the story and and everything that the Duffer brothers have have found a way to create in, you know, Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. And I will say too, the Duffer brothers, when I was looking up information on them, they're only 33 years old. And this is their third project. So they like barely lived through the eighties. Like, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> like, you know, I, because you know, I'm I'm 38 uh, as of the time of this recording. So no way. I have lived through some of the eighties, but it was more the late eighties, you know, and not even the eighties that this show takes place in. And I think that's mm-hmm. a, a real testament to how the story and the 80s that they get this time period and its feel so well in the sense that it's not so much that it's that familiarity of like, oh, I live that and that's exactly like it was. It feels like all the movies that you watched back then, the way all right. the characters act, the way the kids act. I mean, the way the kids are kind of constantly using profanity. <laughs> The same way that the the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. You know, those kids, the way they use that profanity is the same way that those 80s movies characters used it too. And so it feels like it connects so well. They get the time period so right because it fits the pop culture idea of what the 80s was like. And it, it, it legitimately... I just, I, it feels like they pulled this from the 80s. Yeah. Except for the Millennium Falcons wrong, so. Yeah. But they did talk about Lando. Yes, they, they do talk about Lando. But yeah, it, I remember seeing that first time and I was like, wait, that's that's not the right Millennium Falcon from the 80s. That's like from the <laughs> 90s. That's, that's Yeah, they picked one and went with it. Uh, you know, if you're going to do your research, get it right, Duffer Brothers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think I think this is absolutely 
just so well done in that sense. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the whole other side of this, the upside down, um, the Demi Gorgon itself, and just that connection about what they're doing. How did how did that all work for you once the mystery kind of got unraveled? So at first, it really felt confusing because you see the Demigorgon suddenly come out of nowhere, even though you know there's this whole upside down world, you're still thinking, well, how is he getting from there to this world? Because they are still two separate worlds. And I was saying to someone the other day, I'm going to be a total nerd for a minute and talk about the um, semantics of how <laughs> the Demigorgon is getting from one world to another. <laughs> um, but what I think in my head, and, and you can tell me if you think differently, that is that because Eleven is the medium that opened the doorway, the Demigorgon can come into our world however he wants to, but we can't get to his world, the Upside Down, without going through a gate that was already open. Ooh, that's a great, that's a great question. I... I wonder if because I'm I, I think that you're on to something, but it also could be you know, obviously this thing has powers that which we don't understand. We don't really learn anything about the demigorgon or the creature mm -hmm. as the, the anything else that lives there really. Um but I'm also wondering if when, you know, Eleven goes nuts in the tank and creates the rift between the upside down and the right side up, I guess you would call it. Um Yeah that she also kind of fractures what we might consider in Star Trek language, the space-time continuum between the yeah. universes. So it makes it easier for then the Demigorgon to break through, but it's still not enough for us to kind of break through to it. Right, at least anywhere that we want to. Right, right. We, we, we still have to go through the different fractures that truly have completely opened, which... Right. What was interesting, because like with the tree, it almost seems like that tree kind of slowly started to heal up. So like there were, I, I wonder if, because they never, we never see this as a possibility, but I'm wondering if once the Demigorgon opens a rift, if that stays open for a while and you're able to travel through that or not, because like I'm thinking of when they get attacked in their house mm -hmm. uh, and it does come out of the wall or the ceiling, we never go back in that room and see the ceiling. So we don't know if it's still open or not. So I don't know, but that's a really, right. that's, a, it's interesting because then you start thinking about the semantics, you realize there are a lot of things that he didn't answer or show you, but you mm -hmm. kind of didn't care. Yeah. I feel like they either intentionally left them unanswered questions or they said, no one's going to care. Yeah, no, and I mean, I, I still don't care. It just makes for a fun, like you were saying, like a geeky discussion of yeah. <laughs> like the semantics of how you get from one universe to the other. And I think that's a hallmark of good storytelling, though. You, you, you tell what you need to tell to make it work enough for the audience as they're watching it. And you can leave those questions open, but I don't feel like by asking those that I'm in any way lessening the show i almost feel like i'm i'm more making more of it because i still have these questions that i would like to see maybe somehow answered you know uh, we have no idea what uh stranger things 2 is going to give us answer wise um we know it takes place a year later and that's pretty much it and then we've seen trailers but you know trailers can do anything with the material yeah. they have for eight episodes so yeah i'm i just think it's a really strong season like the the way that this season flows the way the story goes the use of the 80s and the way that that all flows together and then everything we get with you know the upside down and this demigorgon and everything here i just watching it again i i was wondering if it would hold up you know like was it gonna be as good and i 100 percent truly feel that this show held up just as strongly as it did my second time through as it did my first time. I completely agree. 
And I, to throw back in my D&D experience one more time, I love that they made this whole part with the upside down as a main part of the story um, because in, as they were saying, Dungeons and Dragons, there's this thing called the Veil of Shadows and that's how they explain to you in the audience what the upside down is. It's a mirror of your world that you have to get through through, you know, only certain means that is um, a dark version. And I love how they do the filming to make that world look so different where it's this eerie, foggy things like particles floating in the air um, kind of twilight look to it and the you know that the creature may not necessarily be the demogorgon like it is from the game but that that's what they're gonna go with calling it it's some kind of um, predator that only lives in the upside down yeah no I I really I, I like the way that they do that too that again I think you're absolutely right um, the veil of shadows uh, it did kind of remind me of the way the world looks when Frodo or Bilbo has the ring on yeah where it's that that like weird fiery like you know it's it's not a place you want to stay that no that nether world like you don't want to be there so yeah i feel like they do such a great job again of, of referencing things that we know but then making it their own so you don't just feel like oh they just pulled that from there that's lame you know that just doesn't right. happen so really really impressed i kind of wanted to ask you you know because we've been talking a lot about everything but I kind of wanted to focus uh, on a few different areas. Uh, I feel like the show has the kids, the teens, and the adults. And we kind of follow their stories and they interweave. So I wanted to ask you about just the kids. You know, Elle and Dustin and Lucas and, and Will and Mike. And how all of them worked for you. Sure. So my favorite character, probably like most people, is definitely Eleven. But... Um, I was thinking the other day about, you know, if I had to name just one, she would be it. But really, I also love Nancy and Dustin. Not to say that I don't like the other kids, but um, focusing on just the the main character kids, really, I like Eleven the best um, and Dustin. But they have this friendship right from the get go, just talking about the boys, that you feel like you're one of them. You know, you can tell they've grown up together in this small neighborhood where it seems like everybody knows everybody. It feels safe enough to ride your bike home from school and the parents don't really worry too much until suddenly Will goes missing. And even the next day in school, the kids are going, oh, well, he's probably just running late or something. You know, they're just not super worried about it until then. It's been two days and, um, you know, it takes them finally going and checking out all the places that he would usually hang out and things like that without trying to let on to his mom that they know something is not right. Um, I just love that, that whole setup and um, to kind of telling you little stories about each of the kids, even though it surprises me thinking now they don't tell you much about Lucas's family. No, really? Or Dustin's. I mean, yeah. So the only kids that we really get to see their family life are Will and Mike. Mm -hmm. And something that a, a friend pointed out to me too was, I wonder why the mom in the Wheeler house never went down to the basement to see what was yeah. going on down there once Eleven moved in. <laughs> yeah. That is, so that that's is one very thing funny. That takes off a little bit for me. Well, and that is that is something that's, like you're talking about this idea, and, and I think one of the things that's so interesting is this really is a different time period. You know, and I grew up uh, in the later 80s and through the early 90s, you know, the world was much different. We rode our bikes all over the place. You know, we went and played down at the park next to the school at the end of our streets, you know, where my parents couldn't see us. We were building tree forts and doing crazy things. You know, we had mm -hmm. friends who lived out by the woods and we would go play Indiana Jones in those woods. You know, like we did all that stuff that these kids do. Um, and we wouldn't be home till supper. 
You know, like that was that was my life growing up. So, but that was fine. Like, yeah, no one absolutely. was concerned that you were lost. No, not at all. Um, you know, and you only went inside if somebody got hurt. You know, because you needed a band aid. Um, mm-hmm. and so no, I I think this feels so real to that. But the other thing that really struck me the first time watching through the show and the second time is how good of actors these kids are. Because if they're not good, yeah, if they're not good, this show sucks. I mean, even if one of them is really bad, the show sucks because they're they're your main vehicle. Yeah. Well, and I mean, really, Mike is like the hero of the show. Yeah. Yeah. He's the one that makes the decision, well, we've got to go find Will and this is how we're going to do it. And then he meets Eleven and decides to bring her into the mm-hmm. group to look for my, to, for Will. And then he, you know, basically calls all of the shots. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And and then Lucas is the the one on the other side who's the cynical one. And mm-hmm. it's it's the battle between those two, which I think is really d- interesting with Dustin in between now that Will's gone. Um, no, you're absolutely right. That And it makes such a fun dynamic. Uh, for me, you know, you said L is your favorite. For me, Mike is my favorite because mm-hmm. Mike reminds me of me because I was the one who always fell for the girls, you know, the, the same way he falls for L. And mm-hmm. so I get that, you know. You, and But what I love is the way in which... So these nerdy kids have all been picked on their whole life for being nerdy, right? And they Mm -hmm. meet that other outcast kid, Elle. She comes in, and they immediately... Well, most of them, except for Lucas, accept her. Right. And I thought it was so cool to kind of see that because they become this little band of misfits... That, you know, like the island of misfit stranger things. Um, and it, it's because of their experience with people treating them badly that they don't automatically just treat her badly. Like they treat her with love and respect and care and all of those things. Like I just, I love that. I, it, it, again, there was, um, it 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 seemed almost Harry Potterish in that sense. Like Harry and his friends were the band of misfits at Hogwarts. These are the band of misfits that are going to save the world, you know. And it's just mm-hmm. they're so good. I really love each one of these kids for a different reason. Um, and I think for most people, you know, Dustin kind of stands out because he's just so over vivacious and like he's so cute. Um. But yeah, I really, I, I like what you said about Mike. I love that he's kind of the one who, for all intents and purposes, he's the ringleader. Yeah. And he pushes them to all do the right thing, even when he's not completely sure what the right thing is. <laughs> well, and when he was getting ready to give up, and then they have Elle suddenly hearing through the radio Will singing The Clash. And then he yep. decides, oh, he's got to still be alive. That's him. I know that's him. And it just totally reels you in for the next episode because I think it was even at the end of an episode and you're going, well, now I have to know what happens because clearly there's something going on here. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, Eleven is my favorite because they don't like her. It, Will, Will doesn't, I mean, I'm sorry, not Will. Mike doesn't have a crush on her immediately. He accepts mm-hmm. her immediately, but that kind of grows over him getting to know her and realizing, wow, she's been through a lot. She doesn't seem to have any family and she needs a place to stay and maybe she can help us find our friend. And it and it is interesting that, you know, Mike has that way of caring for people and it's not just about what they can do for him or the group. Right. You know, um, and I, I thought that was really cool to see too. And and all of them have their different strengths, what I, which is I think is great in the way in which they create the dynamic, especially once Will is gone and Lucas and Dustin and Mike all having to interact together without somebody else who, you know, you get the feeling like Will is kind of some of the glue that helps hold the group together. That's and what with, I was gonna say too, yeah, like you know, and without him, um, they're not quite as cohesive as they used to be. And you know, with L there, somebody who doesn't understand everything, 
that's going on and necessarily how to always act in the situations, it kind of makes things a little bit more volatile. Um, but yeah. it, it, it does. It really creates a, a great dynamic. And these kids, again, are so good that I just, I kind of, I just absolutely love them. And I'm so glad that they turned out to be such fantastic little actors because, again, this show, without them being as stellar as they are, this goes from stranger things to suckier things. Yes. Uh, and so I, I think they really hit the jackpot. And and we really have to call out, I think, the Duffer brothers and the casting group finding these kids and making sure they got the right kids for the job, not just any kid that might have had a name in the acting world or anything like that. So, Right, because it seems like they were all first-time actors and that they just completely told them this is what we're wanting you to do and let them do it and they did a phenomenal job with it and um millie bobby brown um as everyone probably knows is plays 11 um i do want to talk about real quick just her origin because it's so fascinating to me she you know is brought in as um possibly the missing daughter of the woman who whose yes. mind has mm-hmm. gone numb and she but they don't confirm that for you they're just alluding to it and she has escaped from Hawkins labs where they've been doing tests on her and it seems like possibly my my conjecture was that they've raised her since she was kidnapped as a baby to not be able to communicate any other way except through um, nonverbal means by nodding or hand signs Mm -hmm. or through mind control, um, through telepathy and her um, tests. And I think that's to hone those skills to be stronger than the need to speak. And you can tell that she goes through these horrible tests where it's not just let's see if she can crush a can this one time they even go as far as having her kill a cat yeah yeah which shocked me and yeah, so seeing you how feel far her power her. goes yeah because she's sitting there crying going i don't want to do this i'm murdering something and they're going do it or else and so she finally escapes, and then that's when she meets up with the kids. Yeah, no, I think that origin, I'm really glad that we discussed that in the show, the idea of where she comes from and kind of that they really do allude to heavenly, heavily that the U.S. throughout the 60s um, and their experience with these drugs and the deprivation tanks and everything, basically trying to create a superhero— a psychic mm-hmm. superhero, um, and that they had succeeded. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's one of the things that makes you hate Matthew Medine's character in the show so much is because the way, the psychological trauma that they're putting Eleven through. Mm-hmm. And so getting to see those flashbacks is so important to the rest of the series and to understanding her character. So, I mean... Yeah, and and the fact that she is phenomenal, she really is. Um, and again, with if she hadn't been anything but phenomenal, it would have really hurt this role, and it would have hurt this show. But she pulls it off so beautifully, so um, vulnerably. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just exactly what it needs for you to connect with her even if i mean hopefully somebody hasn't been through something as horrible as this um but you're able to connect with her on such a visceral level that and and she just portrays that so well so yeah and um matthew as you were saying making that role as her caregiver but also her captor Mm-hmm. So creepy. Yes. He just constantly rides that line of she calls him Papa, but that's really all she's ever known as like a father in her life. Mm-hmm. 
And she doesn't even get a name. She's a number. Well, and the fact that she's number 11, like how many others were there? Right, yeah. I mean, were there... You and know, where are they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It it kind of reminds me a little bit of Logan, you know, where they find the kids. They're trying to search down these kids um, that still have mutant powers and everything. And uh, they give them all numbers uh, because they're mm-hmm. doing this same kind of thing of experimentation and everything. And, you know, she's X-23. So, um, yeah, you're like, how many more of them are there? So, mm-hmm. no, so good. Um, there's a whole... Other segment we get with the teens, and so I just kind of wanted to talk to you about that. You know, we get Nancy and uh, Jonathan and Steve. We have Steve and his friends who I don't really care about, whatever, Um, (laughs) and Barb. Um, Poor Barb. Oh, Barb. Yeah. So do you think Barb comes back as the big demigordon bad person in the next one? No, I I think Barb is done. (laughs) And the way we know it's her, because it has a frilly collar. Yeah. No, I I think because of the way they showed her when Hopper and Joyce see her last in the Upside Down, um, pale as a sheet with what looks like a slug in her mouth, <laughs> I think I think that um, even though they were able to save Will, it took a lot of effort to save him. I mean, they had mm-hmm. to sit there and give him CPR for quite a while. So yeah, and 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 then just left Barb. Yeah, <laughs> I guess they were like, yeah, she's already gone. Yeah, I I do kind of wonder like why they didn't take her body with them, right? You That's know, a good just question. At least let her parents know she's dead. Yeah, let them have a funeral because they haven't. I don't know. Would you want to see your kid like that though? Like, would oh, you rather true. not see your kid and just have them say she was dead? Yeah, because I don't think I'd want to see my kid like that. Oh no, and yeah. I think. And I love, I will add just real quick, during that whole scene where they are trying to give Will CPR, Joyce and Hopper, that Hopper's having flashbacks of his daughter, Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, that's really strong. It's really well done. And it makes you want to cry. <laughs> uh, and it, it is interesting. So you have, um, you know, Mike's older sister, Nancy. How did, how did you feel about her and um, her connection with, you know, like Jonathan and Steve? I think Nancy is a B.A. I love her. And my friend Steve Glosson and I firmly disagreed on that. He said, Nancy knew what she was doing and she got Barb killed. She's a terrible person. And I said, well, she didn't know, though. She is having this whole internal struggle of being completely unaware of the whole Will situation other than he's missing and being more concerned, as most teenage girls are, about the day-to-day and about the boy she likes. And um, I don't think she was concerned with being popular as much as she really liked Steve and wanted to keep him around, so she did whatever he wanted reluctantly, which no girl should ever feel like they have to do. But she did it anyway. Um, But it wasn't like it wasn't consensual either. Um, And then she starts out, too, as this girl that is very shy and unsure of herself and turns into another person like Mike who is leading the situation and you know I mean it's hilarious I um rewatching the scene where she's at Jonathan's house and they're waiting to trap the Demogorgon and Steve comes in and first he's thinking I'm just gonna make amends with Jonathan then he goes wait a minute why is my girlfriend here then he goes, what's wrong with your hand? Did he beat you? And then he comes in and sees the bat with the nails in it, and she points a gun at him. <laughs> yeah, and the craziness of that house. I mean, I just... Yeah, and he's like, yeah. what is happening? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, here's the thing. I don't I don't think... Obviously, Nancy doesn't know what's going to ha- happen to Barb. She doesn't treat Barb very well, but then no. everything she does after that is in reference to the guilt that she feels about what happened. Because right. when, when her mother um, confronts her, you know, when she comes home and she's like, so I slept with him. Is that what you want to know? And then she's like, that's not even really what's important here. Barb is missing. Like she feels so guilty about what she did and the fact that she is 
she does feel responsible for that. She does feel the responsibility right. of her and and some culpability in her actions for having Barb be there in the first place and then her disappearing. And so um I think I think Nancy's character actually has a very interesting character arc to go through of being the girl who's all about being popular in high school and wanting the popular girl boy the moment he starts to like her and being willing to do whatever he you know wants to being the one who is the leader and willing to do what she has to do to help other people right and completely selfless. Yes, actually, yes. So she goes from being selfish to selfless. And I think that's a really cool thing. And what what was cool is watching how that kind of went with Steve, too, because he, he was in that same boat of being somebody who's just out for himself, totally cool with just being the cool guy and making fun of everybody who's not like him. But you get the picture that that's not really who he is inside. And he makes mm-hmm. that turn too. And they create that very interesting triangle with Jonathan Byers, where in the end, they're all friends. You know, mm-hmm. Jonathan doesn't end up with Nancy. It's not that kind of thing. She stays with Steve, but they're all friends. Like, I love when he's like at the very end, did you give him the gift? And she's like, yeah. He's like, awesome. Like, that's such a cool scene that, you know, like they've created this sense of like friendship and it almost like adult type friendship where you just let bygones be bygones and you move forward. And I just I love that these teenagers kind of get that when what we'll talk about in a minute is so many of these adults aren't getting anything. Right. But yeah, I I think that Barb's story is unfortunate, although I'm not one of those card-toting Save Barb fans. Um, I think that she kind of didn't do the smartest thing either. I think Barb could have said, no, I'm not going to go with you. But then she knew that Nancy was going to be mad at her and probably wouldn't be able to go to Steve's house because her mom wouldn't let her go. Um, But, you know, I think that they all do go through this huge arc of change in a good way except for Steve's friends um, who end up just being total jerks about everything. I I do like that you said that though that um, it looks like Steve and Nancy and Jonathan become friends in the end because at first what I was thinking when I watched that for the first time was that she secretly has this thing crush on Jonathan and isn't telling Steve. And that something is still lying under the surface that's going to bubble up again in in Stranger Things too. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and being a show about kids this age, it totally could. Um, yeah. The way I had read it was is that everything was cool between all of them. Uh, yeah. Which and that the camera was yeah, from Steve. Right. Right. It was from both of them. They they they. But um, yeah, and I, I just thought that was. That's a that's a neat place to take it. Um, it is funny that uh, they turn the trope on its head for the horror thing. Um, you know where it's always you know if you don't want to die, if you want to not die, don't have sex. You know in a horror movie. Oh yeah, Nancy's the one who has sex and Barb doesn't, uh, mm-hmm. and she's the one who ends up dying. So they flip that on its head. So I I thought that was uh, that's slightly amusing and sad for Barb. Um yeah. So I will add to um just a side note if anybody is interested in watching this other um YouTube clip I've seen. It's called Stranger Things in 3 minutes and now I always think of it when I think about that scene with Barb at the pool because there's a guy <laughs> splashing up against a window with Nancy inside going Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man um so we talked a little bit about some of the adults like we were talking about uh, matthew modine's character earlier and um i just quickly with him you know he's so good in this role because in those moments with 11 he's so good at manipulating her and giving her that like fatherly vibe and that like scary 
captor vibe all at the same time. I don't know if I want to be good at that as an actor, but he does it great. Yeah, and there are some actors who I think are really gifted at playing that role of keeping it like a stern, creepy, mysterious appearance the entire time and playing many different villain characters in different movies like that. Like Anthony Hopkins is definitely who I think of as someone that's very versatile at playing a a great bad guy like that. And I I think of this guy constantly when I think of this show because he just seems to kind of creep in and creep out. You know, in a lot yes. of his scenes, it's very dimly lit. And he's always got this um, questionable look on his face like he's really thinking intently about he's his like next move. like a bleached blonde Batman. Yeah. He just kind of appears and then disappears. Yeah. And even in, in the end, when he has um, his scene with Hopper, where he's basically got him in an, an interview room, he walks in and first, he doesn't say anything immediately. He closes the door, he pauses, and he pulls out a pack of cigarettes and a lighter and hands it to Hopper and then says, where's the girl? Yeah, no, he he is very, very good in this show, and... I, I just, I think he's, he's, you know, I've seen Matthew Medine in, in like 80s movies and stuff because that's where he's from. But to kind of see him in this role, oh man, just so creepy. Because every other movie I'd see him in, he's like the hero guy, you know, like he's the nice mm-hmm. guy. Wasn't he in The Phantom though as the bad guy? That I don't remember because I've never seen The Phantom. Oh, so. you need to see the Phantom. Okay, um, <laughs> tangent for another time. Some was really interesting to me how um, Karen Wheeler is this mom who's trying to connect with her kids, but can't seem to find a way in anymore. And I thought that was really fascinating because she is trying to be a good mom, mm-hmm. but I wondered if and and I wanted to know if you read it this way that. It was that she's trying to do it and she had slacked off for too long from doing it and now her kids just aren't interested. I agree. I think that she, it seems unfortunately that when she had their third child, Holly, that rightfully so, she was spending more of her time taking care of the younger child first and her two older kids have now grown up so quickly and she's kind of lost maybe her window to have the same relationship that they may have had before and I think that now you know Nancy is of course busy dating and killing monsters now (laughs) and Will has his group of friends I'm sorry not Will Mike I keep saying Will and Mike interchangeably Um, Mike has his group of friends that he plays D&D with all the time and they're just both too busy to deal with talking to mom anymore Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. And it's interesting how her character as a mother kind of mirrors Joyce as a mother. She's busy and distracted for other reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, she's a little bit emotionally unstable. Uh, You know, it's clear that her husband's left her for a, you know, much younger woman. Um uh, obviously hasn't been helping. She's struggling to keep food on the table for her kids. She knows her son, uh, Jonathan, is having to work more than he should to try and do that, so she feels guilty about that. Like, There's so much on top of her in such a horrible way, and then Will goes missing, and all these crazy, insane things start happening around her house. And... It is a wonder that she doesn't have just a severe psychotic nervous breakdown and never comes back. Well, right. And, I mean, why did it have to be poor Joyce's house? Why couldn't it have been somebody else that maybe could have coped a little better? (laughs) I mean, I I guess I don't know if anyone could really cope better than another with that. Um, But it was interesting, too, that it started in the shed and then Mm -hmm. it ended up moving to actually inside the house and never really went back there. I don't know why. But I think that you're right on the nose that she was already overworked, probably not sleeping well. She looked very 
just tired and frustrated when this whole thing started. And then her youngest son goes missing. And, you know, her first reaction is, well, Jonathan, you were supposed to watch him. You were supposed to be home. I told you not to work when I'm working. Trying to make him like a parent as well, which is unfair to a high school boy. And then she's got to prove that she's not crazy and that Will is not dead, that she knows that there's something going on, but can't put her finger on what it is. I mean, that's got to drive you nuts. Yeah. And and one owner writer is just phenomenal as this character. I, I mean, the way that she draws you in and just holds your attention anytime she's on screen. And what I love about her and again, it's kind of interesting comparing her. Her and Karen are kind of mirrors for each other in the sense that, you know, Karen kind of has everything that Joyce probably thinks she wanted, you know, like a good family, mm-hmm. steady husband who's not leaving, all that kind of stuff. Um, and she doesn't have any of that. And yet she is still more connected with her kids. You know, when you see those That's flashbacks, she's very connected with Will. You know, you get the feeling like before things went super crazy for them, she was connected with Jonathan in a good way. You know, mm-hmm. um, so she has a good relationship with her sons in a way that Karen would love to have with her kids, but doesn't. You know, and so I love the way in which they kind of show these characters kind of mirroring each other and giving you different aspects. And it's like, in a lot of ways, it's so much just like life is never perfect. You know, like life is never yeah. going to be perfect and you just kind of have to deal with what you got. The grass is always greener kind of situation, it, it mm-hmm. seems. I'm glad that you said that they kind of mirror each other because I didn't think about that as much. But I think that it's that Karen really expects a lot of her kids um, or not a lot. But I mean, you know, she expects them to get good grades, to have a curfew, to, you know, she really probably doesn't seem to want Nancy to date yet, but Nancy's doing it behind her back and wishes that Mike wouldn't play so much D&D when he needs to come up for dinner. And it just seems like she's always kind of annoyed with her kids. Whereas I feel like Joyce really encourages Jonathan and Will, when you can see the flashbacks of times being good, encourages them to be kids. You know, they had Castle Byers off in the woods and she knew exactly where it was and used to play with him there. And you never see Karen having that kind of relationship with her kids. Yeah, it's almost like Karen is wanting the picture perfect family mm-hmm. and trying to get that. To a fault. Yeah, and Joyce is much more comfortable with just her kids being who they are. And maybe she was like, well... <laughs> Lonnie's gone. Things are already not going so great. So I got to make the best of what I got. <laughs> yeah. No, that, I think that's true. Um, you know, last but not least at all, I think Hopper is kind of, I mean, next to the kids, Hopper's kind of the heart of this. And I just, I love Hopper so much as a mm-hmm. character in this show. I love the way, you know, he goes through this whole experience with these kids and it doesn't change who he is radically, you know, but. He lightens up just a little bit there by the end, you know, like, and he truly cares by the end of this, like this whole situation finds a way of bringing him out of that kind of like drunken stupor he's been in for since his daughter died and his wife Mm -hmm. left. um, Which feels like it's been years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely been years, enough years, because she's remarried and has another kid now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and, and he's just kind of been coasting, and this gave him meaning again. Like it, And not just that, but I think, uh, you know, kind of talking about these mirrors, Hopper is definitely the mirror from, uh, in some ways, I think Matthew Modine's character... Uh, Dr. Brenner, where he's truly was a great father to his daughter. Mm-hmm. And then he turns out to be a pretty great parent to these kids that he is committed to making sure he saves because of what happened to him before with his daughter. He couldn't save her. 
because it's out of his hands. Right. But this, he will do everything he can to make sure it doesn't happen to somebody else. And I just love the way they gave him that motivation and the way that that brings him back to life in a lot of ways. And in fact, I almost feel like this is the redemption of Jim Hopper. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, too, that it's interesting that they throw back in when he is having the scenes in the lab, again, when he's being um, grilled by them about what he knows. First of all, I think it's funny that they think he's working for someone that's like their competition. And he's like, right. Like he's a Russian a KGB agent or something. Who do you work for? <laughs> Who sends you? <laughs> um, and. He just completely, they tell him, um, well, you know, you're just a guy who took one too many pills, you know, basically saying out loud that they're going to drug him and make him think that this never happened again. And he's saying, I know everything. And and like you said, you know, it, it is his redemption because he realizes this is something he can control. He's going to do everything possible and go to the ends of the earth to make sure that Will gets back to his family and that um, he unfortunately seems to think he can't save Eleven. I think he did rat out the kids that they were at the school, but that he felt like he had to do that in order to get the lab to do anything. Yeah, I think that's going to be the thing that's going to be really interesting for Stranger Things 2 to see how the deal he made plays out. Right, because they did drive him off somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and is he Lando? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's really I loved that tie-in. Yeah, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, it what was, uh, you know, one of the things that was really interesting to me was just the way that this show kind of showed all of these fathers being kind of awful, like mm-hmm. the the Wheeler dad is the most like it's like he's stoned all the time. Yeah, like he just has no personality. Yeah. Yeah. I, I said, even when Will goes missing, it seems that he's just sitting there at the dinner table going, yeah, so why is that my problem? I I just don't. I mean, that was something that was really interesting, kind of watching this idea of these kind of absentee fathers, because he is completely absent for his family. He's mm-hmm. so clueless to what's going on. And then, like we said earlier, it's so weird because we don't really see... Lucas's or Dustin's parents. Um, right. I think we might see them at the funeral, but I mean, it's it's in passing. Yeah. And the only one in this whole situation who turns out to be kind of a good father is Hopper, because you know the buyer's father is a total. I mean, he's the worst of the worst. Yeah, like. When he comes into the story, man, I wanted to punch that guy so badly. Didn't you? Especially when he comes back to the house like, baby, I'm home, finally. And then he's talking about all these great things that they're going to do and he's going to fix the house up. And then he gets into that story about, well, don't you care about Jonathan going to the the college he wants to go to? We got to make sure that he's got the money. And she's like, oh, you're here for the money. That was just unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And and that was, again, it was one of those things where you're kind of mirroring this other dad who's just, again, completely absent in, in the Wheeler household. And none of these, none of these men are, are doing anything that they should. Mm-hmm. Because you have, you know, uh, Daddy Byers, Daddy Wheeler, and then Papa... And these are just all awful guys. Mm-hmm. Awful. And the only one who's kind of doing anything that's even remotely fatherish is Hopper. And it's because that fatherly instinct comes back. And I like that happening. Yeah. And it, and it does make you wish that the other three realized what they had. Um, or, I mean, I guess with Papa Matthew Modine that he wasn't technically Eleven's father, so you you can't really say that about him. Well, how do we know that? That's I mean, true, we don't it know. It could be, I mean, maybe uh, if, if that was the mom, you know, uh, that we saw, who knows, maybe he maybe really they had is a thing. 
her <laughs> papa. Maybe he really is just that evil. Yeah. Which would be even scarier. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's just something that really just struck me. Um, I also kind of liked, and I think this was interesting, and it's just kind of a small thing, but, you know, the, the way that, that they, they use that rift between Mike and Nancy and how they realize they've grown apart because of everything they've been going through in their lives and the way they kind of come back to each other in that, you know, I thought was really cute yeah, and sweet. Yeah, that one scene yeah. where they kind of are talking about No each more secrets from each other. <laughs> right. And then wasn't it like a, did you really sleep with Steve? And she's like, so anyway. Yeah. <laughs> no, and uh, no, he asked her, are, are you with John of the Byers now? I thought you were with Steve. And she's like, anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. And didn't she ask him something like, um, so you're so like you 11 now? 11 yeah. girl? <laughs> uh, yeah. He's like, what? No. Ooh, gross. Uh, it was so cute. It was really No cute. more secrets, but not those. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. That just... It this show is is so well done. Um, I don't know if it's possible, but uh, Christy, if you had a rating for Stranger Things, what would it be? Seriously, this is like a nine and a half out of ten for me because, and I'm gonna say nine and a half out of ten Demogorgons, just because I can't think of another D and D character right now. Um, but uh, because. The really the only things that deducted for me from it being absolutely perfect were a couple things that I thought were maybe kind of too easy, like um, that the kids happened to be in a V club and then they ended up being able to use the radio later um, to find to use eleven to find Will. Um, that seemed like a little too on the nose for me. Um, and then some of the questions that weren't answered, I didn't necessarily feel like they had to answer them, but kind of wish they had answered some of them more like why they never went back to saying um why nancy trusted jonathan after seeing the pictures he took of her yeah that's a good yeah or or maybe i mean maybe she just felt bad for him because she knew everybody was a jerk to him and maybe he's never seen a shirtless girl before i'm not gonna go anyway um so yeah i felt like those kind of things were took off a little bit for me but overall that it was just impressive um with a multitude multitude of reasons um one being the actors that did such a great job with the characters they were given two i think that the way that the scenes were lit and cut together really give you that creepy vibe for every single episode um i love the way that it like we said ties in 80s sci-fi and horror um it really reminded me a lot of Alien, Poltergeist, um, and uh, E.T. the most. And um, and then even some of the Goonies being like a band of the boys together and everything. Or boys and girls. Um, it really just has everything you're looking for in a good sci-fi mystery kind of show. And then on top of that, they had this incredible music, like including the Clash over and over again, which I love anyway. Yeah, I I'm right there with you. I, I think that this is nine out of ten protection casts. So there yeah, you go, casting the protection there. Um, you know, this really is. It's such a phenomenal start. It's the show that. You know, if they hadn't ended it with Will the way they did, it could never have a sequel and be perfect. You know, right. that it's that kind of show. Like, if, if they didn't leave you with that one hint there, you could have never had anything else and been good. Um, and, and that's spectacular story writing. And I think they've written themselves into the place where this season was so good, they put pretty much everything they could into it. Now they have to one-up themselves. And so they... They've kind of put themselves in the upside down, if you ask me, um, mm-hmm. because as every gonna everybody's gonna have the highest of expectations going in now, and that can really hurt you. Um, so I don't envy them whatsoever um, <laughs> at all. The terror just, that yeah. is making sure this works. Yes, absolutely. Like I just, it's it's gonna be difficult, but um, you know, I, I trust them to be able to do it. Yeah, and as you said, you know. The music here is great. I mean, the synth soundtrack is so 1980s. It's awesome. 
and everything works. I, I love the actors. I love the characters. I love the story. I can watch this again and still get things out of it mm-hmm. and still enjoy it. And I probably will. So yeah, absolutely a fantastic show. And it just leaves me wanting more Stranger Things, which luckily in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll be talking about. Uh, so stay tuned. You mean a couple days? No. Well, from when we're recording, yes, <laughs> it comes out in comes a couple out, days. So, uh, but yeah, absolutely excited to have gotten a chance to, to talk this through with Christy. And I can't wait to talk about Stranger Things 2 in a few weeks. Um, if you'd like to c- connect with us, make sure you hit us up on Twitter at TrekFM or go to trek.fm slash contact, uh, choose a show, choose the 602 Club and send an email to us. We'd love to talk to you that way. Or of course on the Babel Conference. Um, I really want to say thank you to Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. As I said earlier, you know, this is the third anniversary for the 602 Club. And these guys have been with the show almost the entire way as associate producers. And it really means so much to me that they have supported this show and the entire network through their gifts on Patreon to us as a network. So if you like what we do here uh, and you'd like to support us, uh, we definitely need your help. We're a huge network and there's no way we can do it on our own. So go over to patreon.com slash trekfm. See how you can be part of the team. Every little bit helps every month. So uh, join up. Uh, We've got some great perks for you. We love to give back. We also love to give you great content each and every day of the week. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Christy, where can everybody find you if they want to talk some stranger things? Or I know you've been doing a lot of different things around the internet. So what's going on with you? Sure. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at morechristy, M-O-R-R-C-H-R-I-S-T-Y. And I love to talk Stranger Things, Star Wars. Um, I have just started writing for uh, the Star Wars Report, did my first book review on Leia, Princess of Alderaan. And then I also write for fangirlnextdoor.com for my friend Teresa. So you'll see lots more of me on the internet. Yes, and you're a huge part of all the episodes we do of Bond, so make sure you check that out too. So Yeah. You could find me on Twitter at MattRushing02, as well as Instagram under the same name. I'm here on the network with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine on the Orb. I'm on the Nerd Party Network, where I am talking about Star Wars with John Mills on aggressive negotiations, and then talking about Harry Potter with Drea Kaufman. We're going through each and every chapter of the Harry Potter books, one chapter at a time on Owl Post, so check that out. And last but not least, uh, doing a show with my friend Courtney, and that's called Cinema Stories, and we are talking about films through the lens of faith. And we just actually did a holiday special uh, about all our favorite holiday movies for Halloween and Christmas. So make sure you check all of those out on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Bat? Bat? What bat? One with the nails.